Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The stock market is doing extremely well, which means to me jobs. No, interest rates should have been raised uh, a long time ago. And uh, the Bank of England has been too slow. But in a herky-jerky but dramatic matter. Business moves forward. Government moves forward. More important, people move forward. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, last week in the UK press, Liz Truss, the shortest duration UK Prime Minister ever, was trying to argue that she was doing the right thing last year by cutting taxes to grow the economy. And she said it was the left-wing economic establishment that were against her. But cutting taxes without cutting spending, that sounds a bit like modern monetary theory in practice, but that was certainly not her intention. But whichever way you look at it, wasn't the market reaction a bit over the top? And is there anything good we can take out from that short period that Liz Truss lived at number 10 Downing Street? In fact, it was such a short time, she didn't even have time to change the wallpaper. The cluster trusts of the UK economy under Liz. That's this week on the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Well, uh, Liz Truss was the UK Prime Minister for a total of 49 days. But, you know, let's be fair, half of that time she couldn't do much because the country was in mourning because of the uh, death of the Queen, who uh, got out of bed to shake hands with her when she was became the new Prime Minister. I mean, really, probably the Queen probably was thinking I, that was a bit of a waste of time. I should have just stayed in bed. <laughs> uh, she really got into the job proper. And then really it only took a week or so to see the pound fall, bond yield shoot up and the Bank of England turning from selling its holdings of government debt to start buying it all again. So it really was quite a catastrophic turnaround. And as I say, really a couple of weeks where she did nothing. And then within a couple of weeks after that, she was gone as prime minister, all because she was pursuing something that you would have thought was front and centre for conservative thinking, the way a conservative government operates, which is introducing tax cuts. You cut tax, Steve, people have more money to spend, that creates demand, which creates jobs, ooh la la, the economy is back on the up. So uh, what what is wrong with that thinking? <laughs> I mean, in principle... Well, I mean, got more money to spend. 40, 40 years ago, she would have got elected and we would have told you the Iron Lady would have been Liz Truss. Yes. Uh, rather well, she than does Maggie dress Thatcher. like Margaret huh? Thatcher. She, she does model herself on Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, and yeah. That is the point. She's forgetting that we've moved on from 40 years ago. Well, yeah, we've had 40 years of experience of what it's like to actually deregulate, reduce taxes, cut back government spending and so on and so forth. Mm. And if you think about how it was sold, and this is what I, I think people, you, you need to put yourself back and say, what did Maggie Thatcher and Ronald Reagan think they were delivering? And for that matter, Paul Keating and and um, and uh, Bob Hawke, because in fact, many many ways you can say neoliberalism as an in, as a political philosophy, as opposed to neo classical economics, which is the economics is based on, originated in Australia. Okay? Um, 
But if you look back at what they thought was going to happen, they thought if we uh, get the government out of areas where the private sector can do a better job, now that's a big question, what mm. are those areas? Mm. Uh, but you get it out, the, the private sector will uh, be uh, re- remove the shackles of regulation, et cetera, et cetera. The private sector will do what the government used to do badly. It'll do well. Uh, there'll be more demand. Uh, the economy will boom. And therefore, you won't need things like you know, social security and health and uh, public education because we'll all be earning such great salaries we'll be able to pay for it ourselves. Yeah, I don't know if she's quite arguing to Even Margaret That's Thatcher what, is good, if, going, going quite that no, far. No, they, 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 they did. If you look back and see what Thatcher, they really thought if we get rid of the, the government out of here, the economy will grow more rapidly. Mm. There'll be more employment from the private sector. We'll have faster uh, technological improvements and so on and things like the trains. I mean, you, you, you can't imagine... What trains will be like in Britain after 40 years of private ownership. <laughs> but well, we don't need to imagine anymore, do we? We don't. We know. And we know energy, what they're shit. And energy provision and all of that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. So well, there's, there's, yeah. A, there's a whole extent to which there was, was an ideology about how the private sector is necessarily better than government. Yeah. Now, there are certainly areas where I'm going to be 100% sympathetic with that. Uh, and that comes down to things like, I mean, my, my favourite example when I was a university student was food. Mm. Because when you you had a like the government paid for virtually everything, and there was canteens producing food at the you know, union uh, student union building. It was dreadful stuff. Then they yeah. deregulated and little little uh, suppliers of uh, Asian food, in particular in Australia at the time, come in, and the food was great and cheaper and quite uh, quite well, a range. I mean, of it's not even just a university. I mean, school meals used to be yeah absolutely atrocious. I mean, amazing seeing uh, taking the kids around to see sixth form colleges now, yeah. where they've actually got private vendors. Like they've got Starbucks in college. I'm not sure whether that's a, teaching them how bad coffee. I wouldn't go down to Starbucks. Really. All no, I wouldn't. Well. I mean, exactly. No, the, 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 let's not. I must say the, the important thing. Starbucks plays an essential role because what else could we do with all the recycled dishwater if it wasn't for Starbucks? <laughs> um, but um, well, I actually had Starbucks the other day, and they've got actually uh, have improved lately. There was a uh, well, like I, a I, caramel. I, what they don't get right is the milk. I don't know what it is about the milk. They make it too frothy. Look, apart so. from the milk and the coffee. What has Starbucks ever done for us? Exactly. I'm sorry, yeah. Just uh, like that. Yeah. So anyway, so Liz, getting back to Liz. Yeah. So the idea, I mean, I think it's she is just 40 years too late. She's so, 40 because what she's selling, it, and the thing is, it's a seductive story. Okay? But, the, but the idea of tax cuts was okay for Margaret Thatcher because tax was at 70, the top rate of tax was at 70%. Hmm. And we took it down. And then there could be an argument that 70% was too high. Mm. But the, so Liz Trust comes along and goes, well, well, it's it's 45% now. Yeah. Let's take that top rate down from 45% to 40%, mm. which will make no difference. E- even if you believe that sort of like the Laffer curve type approach, that yeah. if, you, if you cut tax... And I don't know if it's ever worked, has it? I mean, perhaps it did no. back then. But it hasn't worked. I mean, all these all these ideas were great when you put them down on a sheet of paper. Mm. When you try them in the real world, the consequences are very, very different. And the fundamental – I get one of the fundamental issues is that the distribution of income in, the, in, in capitalist economies, uh, all this stuff presumes the distribution of income is fair in some sense. So you, mm. whether that's, you know, you can still have enormous inequalities in terms of what people earn, but those inequalities are supposed to reflect their different contributions to society. And if you do a standard economics degree, you'll get taught that your wage is equal to your marginal product. Yeah. So, so the amount that you 
contribute to society <coughs> is what you get paid. Yeah. Okay. And so the, a CEO is worth several oh, hundred times more, a nurse. Yeah. yeah people like because, oh, yeah. Like, oh, what's his name? Joyce and Qantas. You know. Mm. Look at the look at the contribution he makes. Yeah. Um, so so yeah. The the ideology is that your distribution of income is fair to begin with. Now, that theory. Uh, in, in in when you actually look at what the logic is behind that theory. It's nonsense, like so much neoclassical economics. Uh, what it presumes, and, and all this stuff is necessary for the whole model to work. And people simply assume what what they get is the end product of all these assumptions, and think, okay, well, the end product of things reasonable. You, you get paid what you're worth. Right. What's okay. wrong with that? So right. let's let's work on the assumption that that is the case, it's, and, well, it, it's we, not and the it's case. not. But if it, if it was the case, then, I mean, that, well, the if whole, it was the, the if the it whole, was the case, yeah. Okay. And and if it and and of all the, all the elements of the theory made sense in reality, then yeah. Yes, the private sector would do better than the government. And, and yes, by getting the government out of the way, you would have a growth, et cetera, et cetera. But the, it, the assumptions are... You know the sort of fad- fantasies that would be rejected from by Tolkien uh, are necessary for this whole thing to hold together, <laughs> and that's that's why they they fall over. So let's just um, I mean it, it's it, you've got so much to untangle mm. to, to pull apart why these things failed. But let's but well, let's well, let's just look at the base idea that cutting tax is going to increase is going to increase tax revenue, which is what the Laffer curve approach that Liz Truss yeah. is arguing. So yeah. that if you tax less. Then it's going to create so much growth that that is going to create so many jobs. That's going to create so many new taxpayers. That means mm. the government is going to get more revenue, and therefore you'll reduce debt. That was Liz Truss's argument. And so Ronald Reagan made the same argument. What actually happened in Ronald Reagan's case is they cut taxes, and there was not an matching increase in economic activity, meaning the lower tax rate generated more total taxes. You got less taxes generated in total. So the scale of the government deficit was bigger. Mm. And the government deficit is what stimulated the economy under Ronald Reagan, which is, my God, that's modern monetary theory. Yeah. Okay? So it's it's it, the, the, the I'll, I'll, I'll try to start from the, from the government perspective, because when you look at things like the railroads, health, education, Welfare, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That is government spending, or it should be government spending. It's, it's, it was a huge mistake, as we see with the British Railways, to privatise that, privatise, you know, transport, trying to privatise health, privatising education, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But when the government is doing that spending, the high, the reason it has a high tax rate is because it's got a high spending level. It's the gap between government spending and government taxation that creates fiat money. And uh, when, 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 so you, you have to have a financial perspective on what the government is doing, and that's completely missing from the mainstream theory because they don't understand money. They don't, they, don't, they don't include, you know, people think economists are experts on money because they're economists. They've actually produced explanations or rationalisations to say we can ignore money. So we don't have money, we don't have banks, and we don't have debt in our economic models. And we're going to advise when how we run on the economy. But they're well, putting numbers in their huh? economic models, and huh? those numbers are monetary values. No, they're not. They, they actually, when you look at their models, their numbers are economic variables, GDP, employment, uh, the rate of interest, which is what the central bankers control. Um, but but it, it's, it's, it's whiteboard stuff. Mm. They don't actually go down and say, well, what is GDP? GDP is the sum of all these goods being produced at different prices and so on. They used to do that before this modern wave took over in the 70s. But they have but, a GDP value, which huh? is a value in terms of total dollars yeah, but it's or a G- pounds. No, no, it's not dollars or pounds. It's pigs. Or it's uh, lumps of gold. It's a barter model. They leave the whole monetary system out, mm. they, and they get it categorically wrong. 
the, the theories that they have about how money is created, like the money, the, the money multiplier, as they call it, fractional reserve banking, they're all models which are technically wrong. Mm. Okay, So they don't have the monetary system at all. And most of their work on money is to explain why they don't have it at all in their models. So all this stuff is left out. The, the, model, the monetary variables they'll spew out of their models are generated by the underlying assumptions, which are non-monetary. Okay? So they're completely at odds with with the real world. But I want to backtrack to the point about government spending because the gap between government spending and taxation is what creates money for the private sector in terms of fiat money. But if you're going to have a high level of tax of spending, then you have to have a high level of taxation less than the spending, so you still have government money being created, but the, the the larger the larger the gap between spending and taxation, then the more money you're going to create, and the more potential mm. for monetary. That's inflation. not the way Liz Trust was seeing it. You got of the you yes, got so, asked about Tid. Yeah, only only if even more so. George Osborne was on TV over the weekend. Who George Osborne, of course, previous Chancellor of the Exchequer. Yeah, uh, he was on Andrew Neil's uh, TV show over the weekend uh, and said her problem was she wanted to cut tax without cutting spending. So he's there, you know, so like, you know, the, the traditional conservative approach, yes, tax cuts are good because the private sector can do more, but we have to cut back on government spending at the same time. She wanted low tax and big government, she said, is, 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 was her problem. Uh, he's a believer in small government. Mm. So we're cutting tax, uh, but, you know, by doing that, we must pay teachers less or close a few hospitals or downsize the police force, and it, that all, all, that, terrible, all that, that good stuff. That has a terrible impact on Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. When Rupert you know, can't afford to go to the hospital anymore or can't afford to send his kids to those private, uh, private uh, schools. Uh, that, See, this mm. poor falls on the poor. I mean, you, you would have mm. seen, maybe you would have seen it. Well, office. obviously it does, yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing. But when I mean, but she, but spending, she, but, you cut but, back on provision to the poor. But actually by her saying, well, I want to cut tax... But I, uh, I mean, she's halfway to being a modern monetary theorist, isn't she? In the, in the, in the beginning stage, she's yeah. saying, well, let's cut tax, and, uh, but we'll keep up with the government spending. Mm. Uh, she believes that that will correct itself because the growth will create more tax revenue, mm. which we mm. were saying won't happen. But that initial phase, I mean, she's being a modern monetary theorist. In a she? weird she, sort of way. Right. That, uh, but then that one, and Reagan, in that sense, uh, was, was as well. It was, yeah. uh, and Thatcher, for that matter. Uh, mm. you, you, but when you're cutting back on the spending, as well as cutting back on the taxation, you're reducing the monetary turnover in the economy. And we live in a monetary system. So if you don't get the money being created by the government, what you do is go and borrow from the private sector. And that then, uh, what people borrow on, ends up causing asset price bubbles, not causing productive assets to be created. And to some extent, I can, I can let the, the banks off the hook here because if you fund an entrepreneur then one in six of them is going to make it and the other five are going to fail. And you're going to lose the money you lent to the, to the five that failed and only make an interest rate profit out of the one who survives. So banks have a natural tendency to end up either supporting fads where everybody thinks it's going to work, like the oil boom in Texas in the 1980s, and all the banks were lending to put more oil rigs because, hey, oil was $40 a barrel, and then a week, a month later, it was $10 a barrel, and all the banks went bankrupt. Um, so you get speculative waves and, and, and bubbles out of what the private sector provides. When the government runs a deficit, uh, and this is looking particularly at the 50s and 60s, it creates money for the private sector. The private sector can then spend 
and finance out of cash flow, and you get actually probably better private sector investment mm. with a large government deficit uh, than you get out of out of the private sector being funded by private banks. Not how she sees it, obviously. Look, over the weekend, mm. uh, she blamed the response to her tax cuts on the uh, the left wing economic establishment. You know, oh, gee, you, can, I, can it, I be introduced? I can. <laughs> she hasn't met you. No, she, no, she's no, no, talk, no, 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 no. no I, want to, I want to find the left wing establishment so I can get funded. Yeah. Okay, because I've been... They'd be right behind you. It is those... Left-wing establishment? Economic establishment. Left-wing economic establishment. Yeah. Um, What she's talking about is that... I'm sorry, I'm going to have to go and get my my brain reordered after that combination of expressions. Yeah, it's those Marxist bond traders, Steve, (laughs) that we're talking about. Those communists running the Bank of England. uh, Those lefties at the Mm. Forex exchanges. Uh, Because they're the ones that obviously uh, saw the pound fall. I mean, it fell almost to power. So that was the the interesting thing was Mm. those, those lefties in, you know, that are trading in stocks and shares and bonds and uh, forex. Uh, I mean, we saw the the pound fall almost to parity with the US dollar. We saw yields on ten year gilts rising from well around two percent in September. They did shoot. I mean, they were going up anyway, obviously because of mm. what central banks and inflation fears were doing to it. Mm. But up to four point one percent in late September, and it was it mm. did it did shoot up mm. uh, after Liz Truss's uh, uh, budget. I mean, all of that seems, particularly on the bond market, seems a bit extreme. So why is that just because bond traders were worried? They're thinking, okay, the government is spending a lot more money here. Therefore, they're going to be issuing a lot more bonds. Therefore, the the value of bonds is going to go down. Then the yield yeah, goes up. It's also it's the Supply biggest market. The yeah. bond market is the biggest market by far, far bigger than the share market in terms of the volume of trading. And you have professional uh, bond traders, you know, by all the banks and all most you know, most uh, non bank financial institutions. And so on. So with this huge market, they're taking speculative positions, mm. and those speculative positions again can reflect herd mentality in, inside the grouping. So if they think, oh, you know, we're going to expect interest rates rise, when interest rates rise, bond prices do fall. Yeah. That is one mathematical certainty. Um, so if they're expecting an increase in the interest rates, you drop the price of bonds, and then what that means is for firms which hold bonds as part of their assets, since this is non-bank financial institutions in particular then that value of their assets falls, liabilities remain constant, they can go bankrupt. But there is an element of herd mentality here. I mean, she might have a point on this, that uh, the the bond market does behave. Uh, Everyone just follows everybody else. And a lot of the time, it is just an excuse, isn't it? So, oh, my God, there's going to be... In reality, I mean, if she did uh, cut tax but increase spending, Mm. government spending... I mean, there are going to be more bonds, arguably, mm. then there's that, 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 that supply of extra bonds means there's going to be a downward pressure on how much people are going to be prepared to pay for those bonds mm. in, in, in the long term. So that's going to push if yields If the central up. bank doesn't intervene. If yeah. that, which it did, of course. But, mm. I mean, uh, but, I mean, so but, I mean it's, it's, a, it's a marginal impact, I would have thought. And then it gets driven worse by just everybody chasing everybody else's tail. So uh, if she pitched it well... Maybe there would have been a less extreme reaction. That's quite possible, and she didn't pitch it well. So that's mm. one of those. That's a Raphael Nadal if. If there is no if, <laughs> it's what actually happened. Yeah. Uh, so yes, they they panic. The panic becomes a well. I mean, I mean, the talk was the wheels are spinning off the economy. It's oh. as though the whole of the you know the UK financial institutions are all going to collapse as mm. a result of this of this one budget. It did all just seem a bit extreme, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, she was clearly hopeless, and so was her, her chancellor. I mean, they were. God knows how they got there. It just shows that the dregs of the Tory party reached a rock bottom. Mm. But. You, you, but the, even so, 
I mean, it, just how much influence does the government have in reality in these things? Obviously, quite a lot. Yeah. But you but, can't but help you, feeling people you, are overplaying it a but bit. If, if you don't understand the mechanisms you're using, you're likely, you, you know, you're likely to end up in in bedlam, mm. and that's what happened here. They, you know, you have people who have got ideological positions which don't make financial sense when you look at the monetary system, yeah. making those decisions, uh, and yes, that's going to cause chaos in the real world. Okay, a, a more fundamental question is uh, is you know what is the right level of tax? When we come back, I want to look. I want to look at that mm. because. There has to be a, a level at which it makes sense that you tax people, mm. uh, and and how do you arrive at that? Mm. Is it too high? Is it too low? I mean, we do. We are one of the highest taxing countries in the world in the UK. If you look at it overall, if you include that twenty massive twenty percent that we pay in in value added tax. So mm. let's look at how you arrive at what is the real tax level. And did she have a point that we? need to tax less in the UK. We'll do that when we come back on the Debunking Economics podcast. Me and Steve Keane, back in a second. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, before the break, we were talking about, you know, what is a good level of tax? And I, I, I mean, I did say that we are one of the highest tax nations because that was the argument that Liz Truss was giving. And, you know, for a second, I might have believed her. But we are. We do pay. If we look at it as government revenue, as a proportion of GDP, well, in the US, it's 27 percent. In Australia, it's 28 percent. Here in the UK, it's 33 percent, quite a bit higher. Not as high as Sweden or France, though. So France, 46%. Uh -huh. uh, Sweden, 44%. So they are taxing much And the reason they're heavily. taxing much higher is they're spending much higher. Mm. And what they're doing is they're providing the public services that don't exist in countries like particularly America and the UK. Uh, Australia's uh, a bit of an ex uh, exception on the front. It gets a large amount of its revenue coming out of uh, export revenue from its uh, from its minerals exports to some extent. Um, but what you've got is, and let's talk about now, large industrialised nations, and Australia doesn't qualify on that on that front. UK, US, low level of taxing it means a low level of government spending. So things like public health, 
transportation, uh, which, which are essential services for most people, power as well in a lot of cases. I'm not sure that the Scandinavian countries have deregulated their power services to the same extent the, uh, the Anglo-Saxon countries have. But they're spending more. Mm. And what they're spending more is the stuff that people actually need and the yeah. vast majority of the population. Health, so education. Health, education, yeah. housing. I mean, like yeah. in, one thing I find, I, I commute between Amsterdam and London a lot, as you know, and I find it appalling when I come back to London because every five metres there's a homeless person begging somewhere. You, you find one or two of them in Amsterdam, uh, but the vast majority are not homeless. Why? Because the government built housing for them yeah, yeah. and put them all in the housing. Yeah. And so the, the, that takes money, that takes spending. Even so that, that communist country, Singapore, you know, has a lot of public... Yeah, a huge amount of public public housing. So what you've got is all these services which are provided by the government require a high level of spending and therefore to avoid a high level of inflation generated in those economies by excess money supply, Mm. they need high taxation as well. So if you look at who who are people who are happy with their governments, it's the inverse of what Liz Truss thinks. Mm. It's the higher taxing ones, not because the taxing is good, but because the higher spending. But Britain has always been, relatively speaking, to those countries, but but not... I mean, we tax more than the the, the US or Australia. And interesting why you exclude Australia, by the way, is mm. just because it's not an industrial nation. It's just a, a country that's blessed by resources. Is yeah. that your point? So yeah, they, largely. Yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, government. There, there was a, a large. Are you sure? Twenty-seven percent sounds like a low estimate for government taxation for a twenty-seven percent for America. I can understand. Twenty-eight percent for Australia. Mm, yeah, mm. yeah. Well, that's the that's the numbers I've got here. Yeah. Mm, mm. So, but certainly, the the big gap between the, the Scandinavian countries, which have a history of, and, and France as well, have a history of public provision of of basic services, mm. and the people's satisfaction in those countries is definitely better than the UK. So if you're saying, if you want to just do an empirical argument and say, looking at the empirical data, what gives you a higher level of public satisfaction? It ends up being a high level of government spending, not a lower level of government spending. The difficulty comes when the taxation is imposed, as it was back in the the UK, 70% marginal tax rates and so on. That causes resentment for those who are paying the tax. But also what it's recreated is the capacity for the wealthy to relocate their income offshore and not pay that tax. And most of that burden falls on the working and the middle class. And the middle class resentment is in what people like Liz Truss and Co have harnessed here. So I think it's I think I think income tax itself is the problem uh, as a way of getting government money out of circulation because the rich can evade it and the poor can't. So it I mean it, historically Britain has been quite a low taxing country so uh, so total revenue yeah 30 around 37 well it depends where you which figures you read but somewhere between 33 and 37 percent of national income is the highest it's been since the 1980s it's increased seven percent since the 1950s so uh, so it, it has so hence the it's easy to say well it's much more than it ever has been before so long as you don't look at places not too far away from us and say but we're still a lot less than that than they're paying and, and, the, th- and the thing is when I mean I'm just I, I do the comparison of UK trains versus European trains yeah on, and it's ridiculous I mean mm. the whole idea that privatization was going to give you better quality transport cheaper etc cetera, etc cetera, is a farce yeah. but the country that swallowed that line was the UK and it's got the worst rail system and the highest prices and the most unreliable service in the continent. Well, they are bit by bit being bought back by yeah. the government. So, so it shows that went too far. Yeah. So it loses continuing to go too far. 
And in this case, even the markets couldn't swallow it, yeah. even though it fits it's their normal ideology. So it's interesting what you're saying about you know how that tax is applied at, at different brackets, because it seems that we do tax the rich more than most, which is, in theory, as you say, a lot of it might not be paid. So uh, the 1% of the population pays over a third of all income tax in the UK. 50, 58% of adults pay no tax at all. Well, a lot of them could be unemployed or mm. old-age pensioners, of course. That would help push that percentage up. So it mm. depends on the age breakdown of the population. But 1% pays over a third of all income tax. So I don't know how you get a level, but and that is despite the fact that everybody pays VAT from the first pound. And of course, the VAT pay. falls more on consumption of workers because yeah. the consumption as a percentage of their income is far higher than it is for the wealthy. It's a regressive tax, in effect, yeah, isn't in it? In that sense, yeah, yeah. It's not. A, I mean, I've never been a great fan of VAT, uh, and what it does, it imposes the tax burden on the poor. Uh, because they, because it's a consumption tax, it falls more on those who do consume. I'd rather see taxes on financial transactions and things of that nature as mm. a way of taking the money out of circulation. But when you rely upon income tax all the time, you generate resentment in those who pay a large part of it, which fuels this whole ide- ideology. Uh, and the burden ends up being transferred to the middle class in particular because the poor don't, you, know, you said the, a lot of the poor don't get an, enough income in the first place to fall into the tax bracket, but the middle class does. And that also it, it supports that whole anti-government spending ideology. Um, when you but When you look at countries which have got you know much higher levels of taxation and much higher level of public provision of services, those countries, there's an acceptance of that level of taxation. You don't get the same debates over our taxes too high in Scandinavian countries, Euro- and European countries like France, like, like the Netherlands, that you get in the UK. So why does the, because I'm sure... But the UK has done everything badly. Yeah, <laughs> you know, people but, are complaining and, and, and you know... But why, why, why does the US get away with it? How do they have they, a... They I, don't. Mm. Okay, I mean the, they have a, they have homeless people too. Massive homeless people. The, yeah. the, the classic book "Don't Get Sick in America." One of mm. my good friends who's since deceased, um, when had a car accident in Arizona, and the doctors were going to let him die because he didn't have health insurance, which was wrong. He actually did, and his wife turned up and said, "No, we do have health insurance." Oh, in that case, we'll operate. Mm. Okay, that is not a. a a civil not, society. That is not a civil society. Okay? No. So it, it's the it's the absence of civility in every sense of the word in America uh, that is a product of the underprovision of services by the government, the excessive privatisation, and the you know with, with the you know, obstreperous foundations they had in the, the the Wild West period and so on, and right to bear arms and so on. I think um, it's a fairly dysfunctional place. You know? <laughs> not one to model ourselves. Not one to model. And, and Although the is, in the UK, it figure, it's an interesting relationship isn't it in the UK because a lot of English people don't like Americans very much uh, and yet uh, you know they keep that quiet uh, but at the same time the government's trying to model themselves on the, yeah, on, yeah. On, on the US. It's, just, it's a failed ideology we need a, you know, we need our policies managing the managing the economy and everything else to be based on a correct understanding of how it actually functions and all this stuff comes out of a non-monetary um, non-dynamic vision of how capitalism operates, which is wrong. I'm still curious how uh, this supposedly pro-market approach that uh, Liz Truss was wanting to take mm. uh, was destroyed by the markets. Well, that that's, was- again, again, I mean, 
there was a lack of, as you see, you've already said, a lack of understanding of how these and, and these, also these, the, the actual practical impact implications of that. So because you have uh, a, a, a theory of economics which obsesses about government debt and ignores private debt, yeah. you've had a dramatic increase in private debt. You've also had banks banks are highly constrained in the assets they can purchase, which is one reason banks establish non-bank financial institutions, which well, can do which, what they damn yeah, well like. Well, you're leading on to the point that I was going to make. So the mm. Bank of England stepped in with all of this because they're because the, the as bond yields shot up, mm. pension funds were holding a whole load of yep. government bonds. Uh, they had, uh, 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 what do they call it, liability-driven investment. So basically, they made sure they have enough revenue coming in from stocks and bonds to generate enough cash to meet their liabilities, their liabilities mm. being how much they've got to pay out in pensions to pensioners that yep. month. Mm. And, of course, you get that wrong. Well, they, they got because it, they it's got all it right. What you're talking about is the asset valuation falling. Yeah. So they've got the cash flow coming out of the bond interest payments and out of the dividends from the shares. But they didn't have the collateral. Well, the thing is, yeah, the collateral value falls, and yeah. therefore, the, the one, one thing about a, a financial institution is, by law, required to have assets greater than its liabilities. Yeah. They must have positive equity. So, so they had you, danger of becoming insolvent. Yeah, and that yeah. was what, and, that, and and so no, normally, when you go back to uh, before we had this incredible growth in the non-bank financial sector. Uh, which itself was a product of banks trying to evade the controls they're under, but also economists not understanding the banking sector and, 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 and enabling the growth of non-bank financial institutions and the total financialization of society. That's all the, 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 the basis of this. So in the past, the, gov- the, bank, the central bank simply had to worry about the solvency of the banks mm. because that was pretty much the financial sector. Now they've got about the banks and the non-banks, and that's outside the remit they got initially because when the, uh, when the role of the, the central banks... But clearly banks, not now because they huh? stepped in. They yeah, stepped in. Yeah. They started buying up bonds yeah. to try and so this, this, get this, the prices back up again. This, this is basically the pact with the devil. They, they didn't even know they signed on the dotted line when they, when they followed Milton Friedman's ideas about how to manage the economy. Yeah. But should they have done that? I mean, I, I guess they had to because everyone would be even more distraught if all of a sudden well, they had, given their the pension situation, funds Given the situation they're in, if you actually had pension funds folding, it would have been chaos. Yeah. Now, like if you look in the American situation, the American... Um, but by doing it, they're not helping because uh, this is a risk. They've, they've taken a risk. These pension funds are running at a risk, obviously, well, and they have the to. Pension but, funds shouldn't exist. Yeah. We should be paying a state pension. Yeah. Okay. This is whole idea of outsourcing everything. And so what now happens is you know, people who just were, used to get a, a regular cash flow enough to pay their bills are now wondering what's happening on the stock market and the, and the uh, bond market every day because if that doesn't work out properly, they could find themselves on the streets. Mm. This is just a denial of what the pensions... So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm doing work on pension funds right now. But in my opinion, we should never have privatised the pension system. It should always be in state provision for doing it. This is one of the many errors of this trivial way of trying to understand the complex society we're in, but leaving out the banks, leaving out debt, leaving out uh, uh, money from your modelling, and presuming the private sector is better at everything. Um, you know, the ideology of neoclassical economics has got us into this mess. Yeah. And well, now, I mean, that's, now the central banks are paying for it. Well, it's an easy win for small government, isn't it? Take uh, take pensions off the books. So yeah, you, that's what a, they a did. slug of money you don't yeah, have to pay out. Well, I mean, right. they still are paying state pensions, of course. Yeah, but the thing, but, but that, the whole part of that was to make the, you know, the budget balance look better. And it's mm. all this distortion about believing the government should be running a surplus, yeah. which, again, is not understanding how the monetary system works. So, okay, so they had to step in. The Bank of England had to step yeah. in. As you say, it's, it's broadening their remit, and you wonder how much broader it would get if there's any, any danger in any part of the financial uh, institutions generally, and, mm. and where, the, where are the boundaries of that? 
but I mean that would that was driven by a risk that was being taken by those by those companies. I mean, I yeah, but, but that, this is the whole pack with the devil thing. If you um, by not understanding the monetary system and by believing the government shouldn't run a deficit, then you start hacking off what used to be government responsibilities such as paying pensions to the private sector, which then generates an entire financial maelstrom. And then you've you've got, uh, this is your pack with the devil bit. You didn't expect that outcome, but that's what you've got. And if you let them fail, then the whole financial system breaks down. You now as a central bank have to watch out for the stability of the non-bank financial institutions as well as the bank ones. Well, this is the pact you signed. Congratulations. So what we have is uh, the the free marketeers in, in, in this example are uh, you know the, the Liz Truss and her treasurer, and the mm. rest of the Tory party. Well, the, the part of the Tory party who support her. Mm. I think most probably do secretly agree. You know, think that she was doing the right thing. Some mm. might say right thing at the wrong time. I mean, she's now saying, "Oh, we should have got inflation down first, and then we should have uh, pushed ahead with all of this." Mm. I mean, I mean, the, the, I mean, there is a fundamental question on timing anyway. Uh, there's a fundamental question on the whole approach, but a fundamental mm. question on timing about trying to drive growth when you've got a shortage of supply, when mm, we have supply mm. constraints. I mean, that, that is, I mean, that's a fundamental reason why we've got inflation right now, isn't it? It's because there's a lot of people with money sitting in their banks ready to spend it, but they, the stuff they want to buy, there's too much demand for it. Yeah, and that was, again, a product of the deficits that were run during COVID, without which we would have had a collapse of the financial sector at the time anyway. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's uh, we're, we're in a, a hell of a mess and the, an ideology which ignores so many elements of reality has got us here. But she sees herself as being radical, you know, and she radical was, left. Uh, or well, radical uh, well, right? uh, well, no, obviously I'm not, not really left sure because no, well, uh, no, the radical left are the ones running the financial oh, institutions. Oh, the bond they're, traders, they're, they're, those the radical bond, tra- bond traders, radical exactly. left. Okay, yeah, and the, you know, and those those Trotskyites at the Bank of England. But she's, yeah. um, mm. you know, the free market got her. If pension funds didn't gamble so much, though, if governments paid pensions out of their, as you say, out of their current budget rather than outsourcing it, this wouldn't have been an effect. It wouldn't. Yeah, if tax income didn't have to meet revenue, all this stuff, which mm. humans get used to stuff. Uh, you know the old the old story the the frog in the hot water uh, story. Uh, we all think it's normal to have pension funds and superannuation funds. They didn't exist forty years ago. There were, there was, you know, there were certainly insurance bonds and stuff like that. You could, there were privatised systems of that nature, but they were quite small. Um, now they dominate the whole damn system, and we, we shouldn't be even be talking about the buggers. They shouldn't exist, but because they do, we've got this dramatic instability, and it comes back and bites the hand that fed it. So, uh, if she thinks she's being radical, I mean, what a shame uh, the Labour Party doesn't have someone on the other side who says, "Do you know what? Uh, we, we're going to start. Uh, we're going to up state." pensions so mm. there has to be less reliance on on pension funds we're going to increase spending till we get to uh, some of our scandinavian countries and start providing mm. the levels of service they have because they seem to be some of the happiest places in the world even though they spend six months of the year in total darkness mm-hmm. uh, and let's model well, ourselves on do things in darkness but still okay. yeah well then perhaps that's why they're so happy that's <laughs> right but then you've got that population problem haven't you that comes out the end of that but uh the <laughs> i know where you're going with this uh but we won't go there so if if you follow if you modeled yourself on them rather than the united states then you'd have a more radical approach but because of that experience 
and a, a Labour Party that's trying to knock the spots off the Tory Party, mm. they use their same arguments. They yeah. go, "Well, you know, you don't have the budget and discipline." If you, and if you look at if you look at the you know the long term result of this, all the stuff is about it being promoting growth. And I mean, I'm, you know, I'm I'm a critic on that front from the ecological point of view, as you know. Mm. But if you want to say, you know, where does Britain run in the uh, in the growth stakes? It's right down the bottom. Yeah, it defines the bottom. So, but that it, could be. You see, that might be a good thing for the planet. You know, we are. Consuming Assuming less, uh, you know. Thank God for the Tories because they're stopping us buying stuff, which uh, which is good for the planet. Ultimately, we are a post-growth economy. Something I want to talk about uh, in the next couple of weeks. We maybe maybe we're doing the right thing unintentionally, but that might actually have you know possible positive consequences. Hmm. Let's have a good talk about that. <laughs> All right. Very good. Good to talk to you again, Steve. We'll catch you again next week. Okay. The Debunking Economics Podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.